Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we thank you for the privilege of your word. Lord, even on a day like today, when we have all been experiencing very unsettling things, your word, Lord, is food for our souls. It's medicine, Lord. It is, it is what we need. And I ask today that we would humble ourselves before you, that we would seek to understand, Lord, what it is that you are doing in our lives through this incredible book. And Lord, that we would, we would uh, be willing, Lord, to be teachable, to be humble before you. So Lord, what we know not, would you teach us? What we have not, Lord, would you give us? And Lord, what we are not, would you make us now? We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, um, this morning, um, you probably are, were wondering, what is Pastor Rod going to preach on? Is he going to change the topic of his sermon simply because of what's been happening this week? And I'm sure there's a lot of that that's happening in churches this Sunday morning. And as I thought about that, um, uh, my, my answer to that question was no. And the answer, no, was not an issue of pride. It wasn't an issue of arrogance. It really was the fact that all of 2019 was dealing with this, this topic. We went through Job, which was talking about how to live your life for the glory of God in the midst of suffering and, and trial and, and difficulty. And then we looked to James. And in James, of course, we were focusing on seeking to honor the Lord with joy in the midst of those trials. And even as we've begun the book of Exodus, we've been hearing about and learning about the people of uh, Israel under the bondage of the Egyptians. So um, we have already laid groundwork, and I think that groundwork has helped us to respond to what's happening here. And I just believe that as we continue on in this book that God is going to give us the tools and the helps that we need so that we can not only live our lives today for His glory with what's happening, but as we continue on thinking about what God has called us to, uh, we can also seek to live our lives for His glory. And of course, as we come now to uh, Exodus, we're reminded that God has been listening to the cries of the people of Israel. They have been in bondage to the Egyptians. They have been suffering the hardship of the taskmasters in that place. And although they went there and they were welcomed in Egypt over the course of 400 years, they were under this bondage that um, Egypt placed over them, moved them from a place of of, of being guests to a place of being servants and slaves for them. And as they cried out to God, God may not have spoken to them, but we find that God was listening and that God was at work preparing a deliverer. And God was raising up and calling Moses to be that deliverer. And that is where we come to in this particular story. Now, understandably, Moses is concerned that he's not fit for the job. And so since God has commissioned him, he's been asking questions. You may remember, as you look back, you might have thought of them as excuses, but let's not be too hard on Moses. Let's be mindful of this daunting task that God is calling him to. Remember, he is one who was listed in the hall of faith in Hebrews 11. And he is one who eventually is used by God to serve as his instrument to deliver his children out of Egypt. So Moses has asked two questions so far. Question number one, who am I? I'm a simple, insignificant, 80-year-old 
wilderness shepherd. How in the world can God use me? I mean, isn't there someone better qualified for this? The next question was, who are you? And God responds with a big, I am who I am. And that was just the full-blown character of God in that statement given to Moses to encourage him, to strengthen him, to know that he has the backing of the creator of the universe. And then, of course, we come now to this text. And Moses' struggles and his questions and his concerns continue. And again, they, re they remind us and they show us the, the human fears that we typically have. We might want to kind of, you know, point a finger at Moses and say, you should know better. But the reality is, if we were in Moses' situation, um, we would likely be struggling with these things too. Um, how many of us know that God is sovereign? How many of us have, have been, had that drilled into our head that he's fully in control, and yet we still struggle, we still fear, we still try and uh, wonder what's going to happen with the circumstances in life? And that's where Moses is here, because he's been called to a task to take the word of God to the people of God and then to the leader of Egypt. So here we find that God is kind. In this text, God is so kind that he condescends to Moses' concerns. And it's a picture of how God condescends to us. And so this morning, I would like for us to consider um, what this passage is about. God's gracious assurance for servants who are intimidated, who are insecure, and feel inadequate for the task that God has called them to. You can probably resonate with that. You might have actually felt that a little bit this week with all these things happening. God, I don't know what I'm going to do. What am I supposed to do? How do I move on with this? Just being a parent or, 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 or carrying on with, with work. And some of you in different work situations have been told, go home, work from home. Some of you have businesses and you're not sure what's going to happen with your business because of these things. And you're worried and you're concerned. That's understandable. And so what this passage is going to do, it's going to help us see God's gracious assurances in the midst of all that. And so I would like to say it a little bit differently. That, that the goal here, the aim is uh, to understand that not only does God call us to specific roles and responsibilities, He also gives us assurances for His call. In other words, if He's called you to something, He wants to assure you that you can do it. But there's going to be some things that come along with that that are going to help you seek to understand what that looks like. So in this text, God strengthens Moses with three different but important assurances that will help him to fulfill his calling. And the structure of the text reveals these three assurances. Let me give them to you up front. And then we've got to see how they fit together. The first one is he gives his assurance through elders. Secondly, he gives his assurance through plunder. And then third, he gives his assurance through signs. And let's work through each of these together. And hopefully these will give you some tools and some perspective about what God has given you so that you can do what he's called you to do. So we want to begin now with what I'm calling the promise of people. This is the first assurance now, I think a lot of times when we think of Moses, we might think of Moses if we've watched a movie like The Ten Commandments. Now, I might be speaking to the older generation here, but, you know, Charlton Heston going out there and all that 
really bad cinematography in its time was really good, but as we realize today, um, wasn't the most wonderful thing. But we see Moses going by himself or maybe having Aaron in tow as he goes to speak to Pharaoh. But what we're going to find as we read the text that we may not have all the facts. We actually may have a distorted understanding of what, what God was doing with Moses in this particular uh, um, event. What the text of Exodus does is give us a right and accurate picture of what is actually going on. And what we read is a means of assurance by God for Moses. Moses is not going alone. And this is really important, friends. Let's read the text a little bit carefully here to see what's going on. Begin again at verse 16. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, and then he repeats what he's already said a few times to Moses, um, and it's basically, I've listened, I've heard, I care, I'm concerned for the people, and I am raising up a deliverer. And I also am going to give you a land. So it's go and speak. Moses is to give a message to the elders. And Moses then is beginning to take on his role as a prophet of God. A prophet of God is someone who speaks for God. That's ultimately what he's doing. So he says, go and speak. But I want you to notice how this little section ends in verse 18. And they will listen to your voice. Now, this has to be comforting for Moses. If you remember his last encounter when he was back in Egypt with his own people was this rejection. But now God is saying, when you go back, you're going to speak for me, and they are going to listen to you. That isn't always how prophets are received. Many times we find in Scripture that they're rejected. Some are killed. But he is receiving confidence from God that he is going to be listened to, and that God has this under control. And friends, that's, that's, a, that's rather profound, isn't it? Remember the question, who should I say sent me? And the Lord says, tell them I am has sent you. And Moses goes and gives the word and they listen. But what God tells Moses next is even more profound. Look at verse 18. And you and the elders shall, uh, of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt. Now see, this is not usually how it's portrayed. It's usually portrayed Moses going by himself. But he goes to the elders of Israel, they listen, they hear, they receive what it is that he's saying from God. And not only that, they join him in an entourage to go to the king of Egypt. Moses is not alone. And God is bringing assurance to his servant by bringing along uh, other people, in this case the elders, who are going to accompany him as he goes to do the job that God has called him to do. So he's not alone. And friends, this is a reminder not only of the importance of eldership in the church, um, in the Old Testament, I should say, but it's also a reminder of uh, the, the need for a plurality of elders. Now, I could not have gone through this week with all the things that were happening if it was just me that was in charge of everything. That's not the way it should be. 
I have elders at the church here that I was able to say, here's the problem, here's what I'm thinking, what do we need to do? And together we talked about the various things that we needed to do. And of course, we had other people that were coming along to, to help too. So friends, no pastor is supposed to go it alone. He may certainly be a leader among leaders, but he must also be a team player that listens to the counsel and guidance of the elders that are surrounding him. And friends, I'm so thankful for the elders that I have that, that help me out, that, that complement me at Gateway. And I say that not to puff myself up. I say that to you to remind you as a church of the importance of a plurality of elders who are working together for the health of the church. And in the same way, the elders as a team, um, they support me as their fellow elder and pastor so that I can be free to do the things that I need to do. And this is actually part of the foundation of the church. Pastor Rod, you're a teaching pastor. That's one of the reasons why I'm called a teaching pastor. It's because we want you to spend time to prepare the sermons and focus on the things that, that we feel are primarily important. And we're going to take care of making sure the other things are taken care of. So friends, there's a sense in which when I am standing up before you ministering the word that I'm reflecting the beliefs and the ideas and the spirit of the elders of the church. And if I say something that will be a little bit off, the elders are going to come and they're going to say, hey, let's talk. Um, and be thankful that we don't have yes men, we have godly men who are willing to speak up if there's an issue, if there's a concern. So friends, there's, there's an importance for me then and, and the leadership of a church to have this, this collective of elders um, overseeing. But friends, we all need others to be a part of our lives. I mean, just by means of application, it just doesn't stop there. This is true for us. We need each other. And that's why even in this circumstance, it's important for us not to say, ah, church is canceled. But we want to continue on in the best way we can to be the church who is working out our Christ walk together, even in unusual circumstances. Now, people may not be leaders in the church who you are spending time with, that you're seeking to have a part of your life, but they're people that are seeking to honor God with their lives and are stirring you to do the same. Now, friends, this is really, really important. We need people in our lives. We need one another. This is one of the reasons for God's church. This is one of the reasons for making membership in the local church a priority. So one of the assurances God gives his children beyond his own help and his presence is the help and presence of other brothers and sisters. Now, friends, look around as best you can in your circumstance this morning. We're not so many mighty, are we? We're not necessarily wise. We're not of noble birth. But we are all born again into the family of God. We all have our strengths and our weaknesses. And we've all been called by the same God, Yahweh, uh, the I am who I am, to fulfill His calling with our lives. So we're not Moses, but God has called us to, th to certain things, to live our lives in a certain way, to carry out our responsibilities uh, for His glory. And in doing that, we need each other. Now, can you imagine what it would like to be alone? And some of you are saying, Pastor Rod, you don't know the half of it. I would love to be alone. Well, who knows? In the next couple of weeks, you might be stuck being alone. Now, I'm a natural introvert. So I'm one of those guys that if, if I go off by myself, I can be fine with a book. I can sit. I can think. 
I, I'm okay being alone. Quite frankly, I enjoy being alone much of the time. But there does come a point in time when, although I'm alone and I'm enjoying it, I miss being with people. Why? Because God's created us in such a way that we need that. You see, God has created us to be with people, to interact with people. That's why community is important. That's why friendships are important. That's why family is important. But when it comes down to it, we don't like being alone or acting alone or standing alone, especially when we have been called to do something that is pretty daunting. So God breathes assurance into Moses by saying, hey, listen, you are going to go to the elders. You are going to speak to them. They're going to listen to you. But not only that, they're going to go with you to speak to the king of Egypt, to speak to Pharaoh. Well, not only does Moses speak to the elders, he also speaks to Pharaoh. And what we find is that when he goes to Pharaoh, God says, Pharaoh will not listen to you. You won't be alone, but that king will not listen in the same way that the elders will. Notice, first of all here, the message from God. It says, And you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. And now please, let us go three days' journey into the wilderness, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. Now, quite frankly, this is a text that many people turn to to say that Moses was being deceptive. Um, and challenging just the, the truthfulness of God's word and, and just the, uh, you know, saying that you know, God was okay with this, this lie. But let's think through this a little bit. Here are some reasonable responses to that kind of criticism. And these will help us to actually frame the reason why they're saying what they're saying. First is this, strictly speaking, Moses and the elders didn't say anything about returning. All right, um, only about going out into the wilderness for three days. So that's one argument. It's kind of a weak argument, but it is one at least solution to it. Secondly, there's some historical evidence that the phrase three days journey was used to refer to any long journey of indefinite duration. Something like us saying, hey, I'm going to be gone for a few days. Well, what does few days mean? Does it mean Three days, we know a couple of days is two. A few days, I think correctly, accurately is three, but not much more than three. Or does it mean I'm going to be gone for two weeks? We use it kind of in a colloquial sense. I'm going to be gone for a few days, right? So in the, in the same sense, there could be this idea that that was what was being meant by this phrase. I think the last one is probably the best way to look at this. It seems more likely that the emphasis is not on how many days, but the purpose of the journey. In other words, the emphasis is that we're going out to serve the Lord. And the idea of serving the Lord there, as we looked at last week, is this idea of worship. They are wanting now to step away from the context of their slavery in Egypt and have a unique opportunity to worship the Lord in the wilderness. So we see here then this message from God that Moses is coming to Pharaoh with. But now I want you to notice what I'm calling the mighty hand of God. Look at verse 19. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. Don't you love that? All right, there's resistance from a pagan king, and yet God is fully in control of all that. He says he's going to be compelled by a mighty hand. Verse 20, so I will stretch out my hand 
and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. So in other words, I'm in control of this, Moses. I got you covered. He'll say no, but I'm going to pressure him with my mighty hand. He'll eventually let you go. Now, let's just remind ourselves here that God is, in this particular text, telling Moses what he is to do and what he is to say and the reasons why he is saying these things. This hasn't happened yet. This is on the front end. This is looking ahead. This is kind of laying out what Exodus is about. But he's giving him assurances that even when he goes to the Egyptians, that he is fully and completely in control. Philip Riken, I think, says it best. He says, this part of Exodus serves as a preview of coming attractions, providing an outline for the next 11 chapters. Step by step, this is how the Israelites would be saved. The people will believe, the king will be hardened, the Egyptians will be played, the deliverance will occur, and finally the Egyptians will be despoiled. Now the phrase, let God's people go, actually suggests expulsion. It's not just, I'm going to let you go. It's, it's more of a, we want you out of here as a result of all that God is doing through the plagues. And friends, this is proof that not only does God know the past, as he says, he's been aware of the suffering, he's aware of the present, but he is also a God who knows the future. Not in some fuzzy way, but in a specific way that cannot be comprehended um, by us, except to believe what God says is true. So friends, it's just a wonderful thing to see the mighty hand of God. And so friends, this is the promise. It's the assurance for us that God gives us people as we go through life to help us live our lives for His glory. We're not supposed to go it alone. We need others. We need others to help us in that journey. And even those of us in leadership need others to help us along the way in that journey. Well, let's continue on now to the second assurance, the second promise. And it's the promise of provisions. The promise of provisions. This might seem to you to be a little strange in this text, but let's read it once again, verse 21 um, through verse 22. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, and when you go, you shall not go empty, but each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. You shall put them on your sons and your daughters, so you shall plunder the Egyptians." So we see here, first of all, just the, the, the promise of God's favor. There's two words that bracket these two verses. The first word is favor, and the second word is plunder. The plunder of the Egyptians will be a reflection of God's favor for the children of Israel, their sons and daughters in particular. And to help us understand what's going on here, and the reason why I'm even saying this is a promise of provision is not only is it God promising this now, but He's reminding Moses of a promise that He's already made. So we want to go back now to Genesis chapter 15 and verse 14 uh, and 15 to remind ourselves that 400 years earlier, God had already promised Israel that they would be the recipients of plunder. So Genesis chapter 15, and I believe we're looking at verses 13 and 14. I'm sorry. Then the Lord said to Abram, 
Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possession. Now to Abraham, that that might have seemed very cryptic. What does judgment look like? What does great possessions look like? Well, now God is spelling that out for Moses. So we read then in our text um, that God is going to provide for the the, the Hebrews um, plunder. It will be given to them. But notice that this plunder will not be taken by force. Let's read again carefully verse 22. But each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house. Do you see what, what God is saying here? He's imagining Women, and the focus here is on women because the men are usually the slave task force out in different places. So you have these women now who are in these homes who are, who are helping and serving in various capacities who might work in an Egyptian household or rub shoulders with others who are Egyptians. And in his mind he's saying while you're there they can tell those people, those ladies, about what God is doing. Something along these lines. Our God has come to bring us up out of Egypt so we're leaving could we have some silver or gold or some clothing for our children? And the Egyptian women are going to give it to them. You say, that's kind of strange, isn't it? Well, let me put it this way. You have experienced plague after plague after plague after plague, and the last plague is the death of your firstborn son. Gold and silver doesn't mean much anymore. And they're going to say, take it. Go, all right? Remember, I will let you go. Go, get out of here, take the money, run. We don't want you. This is all part of God's plan. And I think sometimes we have a picture wrong here that it's, you know, the, the Israelites somehow went in there and, and plundered by force. No, they plundered by asking. And they were just given all these resources to take with them. And notice what those resources are. Here's the pattern that we see of God's favor. It's God's faithful provision for His people, not just in the big things, but also in the little things, putting clothes on the backs of their children. Did you catch that? Now, you moms know exactly what He's talking about here. You're constantly, you know, it's like, should I put the jacket on? Should I take the jacket off? I'm going to, you know, add clothing, less clothing, right? You're constantly concerned about the welfare of your child. And what, what's happening here, these slaves now, these former slaves now, are, are, are receiving from the Egyptian clothing so that they can go out into the wilderness. I don't know about you, if you've ever been out into a desert wilderness, it's scorching hot in the day and it's cold at night. And if they're going to go three, three days journey into the wilderness, having clothes for their children is a huge deal. It's an important thing. So not only do they have gold and silver and that kind of stuff, but they also have clothing. Now let's just think through this pattern that God is laying out for us. And I want to just draw your attention to Deuteronomy chapter 15. Deuteronomy chapter 15 and verses 12 through 15. And the idea of this text is that God is giving gifts... Um, to those who are slaves who have been liberated. So Deuteronomy 15, verses 12 through 15, is the law. 
And it says that if a Hebrew sells himself into slavery, that's what happens when you are in debt. You can't pay your debts. You, you join yourself to that person to pay off your debt. Here's what he says. That in the seventh year, the slave is to be released. And when they are released, they are to be given gifts that the Lord has blessed them with on that, on those, while those slaves are leaving. And it's punctuated here by the Lord saying, because you too were slaves in Egypt. <laughs> so this is a practice. This is a pattern that God institutes now to remind Israel of their joy and of their liberation and how God has brought them out of Israel. So this is, sorry, Egypt. This is how God works, right? He blesses even those who are enslaved and who have been set free with all sorts of gifts. Then Ezra chapter 1 and verse 4. Again, the story of Ezra is about the return from exile. So this is the end of the history of, of Israel in the Old Testament. And uh, Ezra is, is, is a part of a, a, of a group of people that are coming back. And here we have the decree of Cyrus. And so this is what he's saying to the Israelites as they're talking about going back to Jerusalem. He says, And let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, beside freewill offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. So even Cyrus in making that declaration says, when the exiles leave Babylon and return to Jerusalem, you're to give them gifts. So this is what happened. They come with all these gifts. And the gold and the silver, most of that was used in the temple, in the establishment of the temple, in the resurrection of that temple. Kevin DeYoung helpfully says this, it's a measure of God's care for us. This is how he works. He not only gets you out, he gets you going. He doesn't just save you, He equips you. He doesn't just redeem you and rescue you, He gives you gifts, and He never tires of giving you gifts. Friends, it's not, it's not the whole story of the gospel when we say, I got saved. It's a wonderful truth. Rescue is beautiful, it's great, but that's not the whole package. That's not the whole picture. God continues to give us gifts. And so we want to move then from the law and the exile to the gospel. And this is just one passage, Ephesians chapter 4, verses 7 through 8. When God delivers us from the bondage of sin, He doesn't just leave us there, He gives us gifts. That's what Paul is saying here. By grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when Christ ascended on high, He led a host of captives and He gave gifts to men. So here's this pattern. All right, being led out of captivity, receiving gifts. Being led out of captivity, receiving gifts. And so when we flash forward to the gospel, in the gospels, we're reminded that what Jesus Christ did on the cross was pay for our sins. Yes, beautiful, wonderful, but that's not all he's done. And as you enter into the family of God, he lavishes you with all sorts of spiritual gifts. He gives gifts to the church. That's why in Ephesians 4, he talks about uh, apostles, prophets, pastors, and teachers. And then he goes in and talks then about spiritual gifts. So God doesn't stop with, I can save you. He continues to bless his children with gifts. Friends, it's a wonderful thing. We have the promise of people. We have the promise of provisions from God. Now, third, I want you to notice the promise of power, the promise of power. 
He says, you will not go powerless. That's ultimately what he's saying. Moses will take with him three signs in order to back up and reinforce the words that he will be speaking on behalf of the God of Israel. Notice verse 1, then Moses answered, behold, but behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, the Lord did not appear to you. Of course, this is the third question of concern that Moses has given to the Lord. Again, the first one was, who am I? The second one is, who are you? And now he's saying, what can I do so that they will listen? I mean, I can go and speak. I can repeat what you said, but will they even listen to that? And so, friends, what we have here then are the tools that God is going to give Moses to accompany him as he gives the word of God. And I say tools because what we see here are not the message, but the vehicle of confirming the message. They are tools to stir them to believe the message of God in the voice of the prophet of God. And each of these signs are not just parlor tricks, but they are directed by God to say something specifically to the Egyptians. So first of all, I want us to consider signs and miracles. These, these are signs. This is chapter, or verse 8 and 9, emphasizes them as signs. <clears throat> and then verse 21 of uh, chapter 3 emphasizes these things as miracles or wonders, depending on what text you're in. This is what God says He's going to do. Now there's a distinction between a sign and a miracle. There are two, two different purposes. A miracle uh, or wonder is something that stops people in their tracks, making them stop and stare. A sign points beyond itself to something else. So one's kind of like, wow, did you see that? The other one is saying, hey, look at that, but there's something more. It's pointing to something beyond itself. Also, a miracle is supposed to capture the attention. A sign is supposed to engage the mind, makes you think, makes you connect dots. Again, a miracle astonishes. A sign instructs. So a staff turning into a serpent, a hand becoming leprous and healthy again, and water becoming blood are rightly called miracles. But in what way are they signs? What are they pointing to? What are they illustrating or seeking to confirm? Well, friends, they are miracles designed to authenticate the word of Moses, the word of God through Moses. But there are also signs that point to deeper realities that the Egyptians would understand. So let's consider now the significance and meaning of these signs. We first of all have the staff that ultimately will become a serpent. And that staff that becomes a serpent will swallow up the serpent or the snake that is, is, uh, is Egypt. So the serpent here, the cobra, was a symbol of Egypt. If you look at um, any kind of uh, antiquity, in particular the, the, the crown of the pharaohs, you will see the serpent, in particular the cobra, is central to their identity. It's a, a national symbol, so to speak. It would be similar to what we have in our United States, the, the bald eagle. You know when you see the eagle, it represents the U.S. Or if you're, you're, you're British, you know the lion represents England. In the same way, the serpent, the cobra, was a symbol of Egypt. 
So the turning of the staff into a snake carried not only uh, uh, carried a not so subtle message that God was sovereign over Egypt. Then the hand, the hand being put into the cloak and being brought out, and 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 there being leprosy, um, was also a reminder to the Egyptians, who at that point in time leprosy was rampant um, in uh, the land of Egypt. But it was a reminder that God is sovereign even over the disease, and that He could control all of that. Then we have the Nile, and the Nile being turned into blood. This is a picture of the the life and vitality of that region. The Nile was, might want to say, the, 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 the life itself. It was central to Egypt's food supply and national economy. Uh, the Nile sustained the nation. So by turning the water of the Nile into blood, God was stating that He could destroy this life-sustaining water and Egypt along with it. But there's more to this final sign. By turning the Nile into blood, God was directly challenging both the divine claims of Pharaoh and the alleged power of the pantheon of Egyptian gods. At least three of the Egyptian gods, Kanum, Hapi, and Osiris, were connected to the Nile. And in turning the Nile into blood, God was demonstrating their impotence and His power. So each of these signs, friends, verified Moses' credentials and authenticated his ministry as prophet. This is what God was saying. This is what's going to happen, Moses. Here's how you're going to move forward. The staff in your hand and the, uh, the blood are, are there to serve to confirm the truth of what you're saying as my representative. So each time Moses would perform this miraculous sign. God was working through him, which is part of the reason and what God means in chapter 3, verse 12, when he says, I will be with you. I'll be with you in this whole process. So these these signs were authentications of the word that Moses was bringing into Egypt. But that's not all here. I want you to consider now um, the, the strength and motivation that results for, in particular, not just the, the, the presentation, so to speak, to Egypt, but for Moses himself. Moses was struggling. Moses is insecure. He is weak. He's human. And God is coming alongside him saying, listen, these signs are going to help you. Now, just think about this. Taking a serpent by the tail may have been the bravest thing Moses had ever done. I don't know about you, but I'm not one who likes snakes. Um, and more than that, I don't like touching snakes. More than that, I don't like picking snakes up from the ground by their tail. Um, and you can just imagine what's happening here. But as Moses goes through um, performing these signs, and by that I don't mean parlature, I'm just saying doing what God says to do with these signs, he is being strengthened by God as the I am who I am to continue representing him and serve him faithfully. To have leprosy rendered you unclean and unable to be used. But any apprehension Moses may have had upon uh, looking at his hand is now uh, completely turned around because he sees that God takes the unclean person and he makes that person person clean and useful. So here he is, fearful, struggling, worried, and yet God is 
strengthening him, and through that strengthening, motivating him to be ready to serve him and to glorify him as he stands before Pharaoh and as he exercises these signs. Now, friends, maybe one of the lessons that we need to see in this text is that God takes the seemingly ordinary in order to do the extraordinary. He took a staff and turned it into a snake that's devouring. He takes a hand and dips it into disease for a moment. He took a river, just water, and he changes that water into blood. And friends, not many of us are wise. We've said that already. Not many of us are powerful. Not many of us are of noble birth, but God uses us. You don't have to be a celebrity Christian in order to be used by God. He takes normal people, struggling people, frail people, and he uses them for his glory. Maybe to put it in Moses' terms, the staff of Moses had to become the staff of God. I like what Francis Schaeffer says here. This is where I got the statement from. He says this, Consider the mighty ways in which God used a dead stick of wood. God so used a stick of wood can be a banner cry for each of us. Though we are limited and weak in talent, physical energy, and psychological strength, we are not less than a stick of wood. But as the rod of Moses had to become the rod of God, so that which is me must become the me of God. Right? In other words, who I am with all my frailties, with all my weakness, is what God is choosing to use. He goes on, then I can become useful in God's hands. The scripture emphasizes that much can come from little if the little is truly consecrated to God. So we're not here necessarily this morning saying, you know, we're, we're going to, you know, what we have, we're going to see snakes and all these things happen. We're not trying to do that. But what we're saying is my imperfection, my simplicity, just the, the way God has made me, God can use in great ways for his glory if we'll simply consecrate that to him. All right, we sing the song, take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee, right? Take my moments, my time. Take my, my eyes, my ears, and my mouth, all those things. Those are all part of who we are. We say, Lord, this is yours. We want you to use it for your glory. Well, let's now kind of draw our attention, not only from the signs and miracles and the significance and meaning, the strength and motivation, but ultimately this is taking us to our Savior and ministry. Friends, what we're reading here, what we're seeing here, is the very same thing that Jesus did in the Gospels. Let me invite you to turn to Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1. If you look in your Bible to Mark chapter 1, I want to draw your attention to verses 14 and 15. This is what Mark says. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. This is what Jesus came to do, to proclaim this gospel. And if you look a little bit further down in Mark chapter 1, verse 29, uh, we'll, we'll read through verse 39, but I want you to see how this is unfolding and the emphasis that Mark is making for us right at the beginning of his gospel. He says, And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with fever, and immediately they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. 
that evening at sundown they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons. And the whole city was gathered together at the door, and he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. Verse 35, And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to the, a desolate place, and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him. The idea there is they were looking all over for him. This was important. We've got to find him, right? And they found him, and they said to him, Everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, Let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. Now, I just want to just interact with this text a little bit to help us understand what's going on. Jesus performs all these miracles, these wonderful uh, miracles with the people who were struggling. And it's true, it's just a beautiful picture of his love and his care for people. And when, um, when Simon comes with others and he says, everyone is looking for you, the reason he's saying that is because they're all looking for you because they want you to continue to do the signs and wonders. So how does Jesus respond? Okay, okay, enough arguing, enough kind of nagging. I'll come and perform some more miracles. If miracles is what you want, then miracles is what you'll get. No, that's not what he does. He says, no, I don't think so. <laughs> we need to go uh, preach the gospel of the kingdom in other towns for that is what I came to do. And friends, this is really important here because as we, go, as we interact with the story of Moses, the signs that he's given are not there to be the focus and the point. They're there to authenticate and to affirm him as God's messenger so that what God says will be received. This is so important for us because much of the church today is far more enamored with the sign or the perceived miracle than they are with the actual word of God, which is the point. Now, we could go to Luke 16. I'll just tell you there, the story there in Luke 16 is about the rich man and Lazarus. And in that story, the rich man lives in his house, high on the hog, so to speak. There's a beggar by the name of Lazarus who comes at, the, at, the, at his gate and he's covered in sores. I mean, he is, he is just in a horrible state as a beggar. So the, the point here is this huge disparity between the rich and the poor. And we have here Lazarus who's eating this, the, the leftovers from the table. All right, the rich man dies, Lazarus dies, Lazarus goes to heaven, the rich man ultimately goes to Hades or hell in this story. And the rich man is bemoaning now his condition, and he wants God to send Lazarus to his family to warn his brothers not to do the same thing that he did. And I want to pick this up in verse 29. But Abraham, this picture of God here, said, They have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. I mean, something sensational. They need a sign. He said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone shall rise from the dead. It's just a reminder, friends, that the gospel is what's central. But there are signs that point then to the gospel. So what signs do we have? 
I mean, Moses had some incredible signs that he could perform. I don't think you're going to show up at work tomorrow and you know, you're going to pull out your iPhone and it's going to turn into something and it's going to eat up everyone else's iPhone. I don't think that's how it's going to work. We're not to, to somewhat kind of mirror what we see there in, in Exodus, uh, literally. And we think of Jesus, He had many signs and wonders. Of course, He was God, right? So He could perform those things. I mean, who are we? What kind of signs do we have? Well, let me share a few and how they play out. And they're maybe not what you think they are, but they are incredibly sensational. But they're there to authenticate and to help the gospel message, right? Here's the first one. It's the Incarnation. See, we celebrate Christmas. And we know, we know that you know, Jesus is the reason for the season. The incarnation is the point of Christmas. But this is why as Christians we need to maintain the fact that He is the central focus of Christmas. Why? Because that incarnation is a sign pointing to something that God has done for mankind. He's left the splendor of heaven and He's entered this world as a little child, taken on the form of a servant. The incarnation is a sign. It's a means by which we can show a beautiful reality that points us to the gospel. Secondly would be the atonement. Oh, the atonement, the body and blood of Jesus sacrificed for us. This is what happens at the Lord's Supper. Every time we gather for the Lord's Supper, we are celebrating a sign. It's not about the Lord's Supper. It's not about necessarily the actual elements. It's about what those elements are representing and pointing to what Jesus Christ has done for us, not just in dying, but in taking the sin of the world on his shoulders and being that sacrifice once for all. That's another sign. The next one would be this, would be the new birth, what we celebrate as baptism. We, we, we portray in baptism this change of being dead, but being made alive. And it's a wonderful thing. Someone who's an unbeliever comes to a baptism service, they should be able to see through that ceremony the sign and what is important about this miraculous change that takes place in us. Another one is this, the body of Christ. Whenever a marriage takes place, it's such a wonderful opportunity to talk about Jesus as the groom and the body of Christ being the bride. It's a picture that's pointing to a reality. It's a ceremony, but in that ceremony there is a point, there's a deeper point. And that's why we say, we're going to do a Christian wedding. What does that mean? And it means that in, at, at that point where we're, we're looking at the bride and groom there, and they're looking each other in the eyes, and as the pastor is speaking, he's saying, this is a picture of the relationship of Jesus and His church. And that picture is there because of the gospel, because of God's plan of salvation. It's a wonderful sign to point to deeper realities. Now, of course, the last one is what you might want to say the trump card of them all, isn't it? It's the resurrection. There's no greater sign than the historically evident empty tomb. Jesus rose again. Right? Historical records, documents, archaeology even, all support the fact that Jesus Christ rose from the tomb. These are signs. Signs to help us then, as we share the gospel, not only affirm our own hearts, but also demonstrate the power of God. But here's the thing. 
society in and of itself may not be what we should be focusing on. It is the sign that draws us to the gospel. So you talk about the resurrection, but in talking about the resurrection, the point then is for that person to understand that the resurrection is this this ultimate uh, uh, approval of God and demonstration of God of this conquering of sin and death. And that should then draw them to actually listen to the gospel that you are presenting, that Jesus Christ came and he died for them. So these are all signs. They're wonderful signs that we have. So, so hear this. We are not to be chasing new signs and wonders. We're to be pointing to the signs and wonders that are already present in the word of God that reveal to us the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, this is all to say to Moses, God is saying, I know you're a little insecure. I know you're struggling, and I want to assure you. I want you to know that you will have people who will listen to you, who will go with you. I want you to know that the people ultimately will be blessed with all sorts of provision. I want you to know that as you go, you are going to have power. It's not your power. It's my power that is going to be worked through your ministry serving me. But these are all assurances for you so that you can go and you can, you can go in a way that would honor me and you can represent me faithfully. And friends, just think of your circumstance right now. Um, you're seated, seated at home looking at this live stream, um, drinking a cup of coffee, following along in your Bible, taking notes. And I want to remind you that the people of God are absolutely necessary for your growth in Christ-likeness. We need each other. And this is not, you know, people at the bottom, so to speak. You know, they need the people at the top. No, we need each other. I, as a teaching pastor, am I'm simply exercising the giftedness that God has given me for his purposes. But the body of Christ is made up of all sorts of different people. We need each other. So as we bring things to a close here this morning, I want to emphasize these three things just afresh. First of all, that we need to cultivate our relationships with the people of God. In other words, I want to encourage you, you may already be doing it, but continue to do it and, and, and do it even more not because I simply want you to check off a box, but to see the wonderful beauty of what it means to be interacting with the body of Christ, committing yourself to them, praying for them, helping them, counseling them, receiving the benefit of that from others who are part of the body of Christ. So cultivate your relationship with the people of God. As we consider God's provisions, we need to continue to develop an understanding and an awareness of our new identity in Christ. Part of our studying through God's Word, part of a, a woman's Bible study or a men's Bible study or a one-to-one -one kind of relationship is to, to encourage one another to discover afresh these wonderful gifts, these blessings that God has given us because we are now in Christ. You just read through Ephesians chapter 1, and there's all these wonderful resources that are given to us. And sometimes I wonder whether we try to function through life without tapping into those resources when God has given them to us. So God's people, God's provision. And finally, as we consider God's power, connect your thoughts and the thoughts of others to embrace the sign 
within the ceremony. In other words, what I'm saying is when it comes time for Christmas, we don't want to be cheesy about it, but we want to make sure that people understand. Listen, do you understand that Christmas is really about Christ? It's not just a cultural thing. It may have become that, but the central focus of Christmas is the incarnation. Do you see the, the truth that the sign, the ceremony is pointing to? Or maybe it's you know a baptism, or maybe it's gathering as a church, or maybe it's at a wedding. The point is, are we willing to see those things? Are we seeking to see those things? Are we seeking to talk about those things even with one another so that we're not just focused on the ceremony, but we're seeing beyond that in, in, in a deeper way what God wants to see about Himself and His relationship with us? And friends, God is taking us on a journey with Moses. I know all of us struggle with things that are before us. Lord, here's a circumstance how we're going to face it. You know, our, our home may be taken away from us. Where are we going to live? How are we going to function? My, my job is shutting down. This coronavirus thing is, is going to deplete my, my job um, or is going to take away money from you know, my income, whatever it might be. God, how am I going to face this? You may be insecure, but friends, I want to I encourage you. And God wants to, you to be assured that you have at least these three resources and one more, and that would be God's presence with you as the I am who I am, but who also gives us his body, gives us his provisions, gives us his power so that we can think afresh about where we are and what he's called us to. Friends, I want to encourage you, seek to, to consider that God wants to assure us because he knows that we are weak. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. We know that song. And it's a reminder of the core realities of the gospel that give us assurance in times like these. As we read through Job, we studied through Job. As we went through James, we studied through James. We were reinforcing what it means to live in the context of trial and difficulty and uncertainty. And those resources have helped to feed us today. This helps to feed us to say, God, we, we trust you, we love you, we thank you for giving us yourself, but also giving us tangible things, people, uh, these realities that are part of our own spiritual growth, and then also just the reminders of, of the power and the beauty of the gospel that's found in the Word of God. Friends, let me encourage you to live for God this week. Let me encourage you to serve Him faithfully. Let me encourage you to, to walk out of your house and look at your neighbors in a, in a different light and to glorify God by your attitude toward what you're going to be doing. Uh, we serve a great God. He's still on the throne, and He assures us in many ways, just like He assured Moses, that He has it all figured out, that He's in control, and that as you carry on serving Him, that He's going to give you the things that you need each day to live your life for His glory. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank You for your ongoing truth. We thank you, Lord, for your, your gentle accommodation to our insecurities. And Lord, at times we may be rebellious, and we're going to see that a little bit with Moses, but Lord, most of the time, these are just natural human struggles that we, we encounter. And uh, Lord, we, we just thank you that you treat us as sons and daughters, that you nurture us, that you help us, that you that you, you encourage us with your truth. And Lord, you, you want us to, to face life 
in a way that is fueled by not only you and your presence, but by the truth that, that helps reinforce the fact that we can live for you. So, Lord, may we not seek to go it on our own, but, Lord, may we go it for your glory and ultimately, Lord, for our good. We thank you now, Lord, in your precious holy name. Amen.